welcome back to New Books in Sociology. My name is Sarah Patterson, and I'm one of the hosts here on this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ivan Asher about his book, Portfolio Society, on the capitalist mode of prediction. Welcome to the show, Ivan. Thanks. Well, to get us started, tell us a little bit about yourself. I teach political science at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I mostly teach uh, political theory, so kind of canonical texts of, of political thought, like uh, you know Machiavelli, Hobbes, and people like that. But most of my research is in in contemporary political theory and uh, specifically kind of critiques of contemporary capitalism, which is where the the book uh, fits in. Even though it's also part of a conversation about political theory. Great, thanks. Can you tell us how this book came about for you? Well, it was. Um, Depends how you start, I suppose, but it was it was going to be a very different book. I had uh, written a dissertation about uh, Karl Marx, Max Weber, and language, um, which was mostly a fairly Derridian kind of literary analysis of of, of their works. And uh, as I had to, when I took my first job at UMass Amherst, I had to turn the dissertation into a book, and so I was working on language of monstrosity in in social theory because Marx talks about capitalism in monstrous terms and so does Weber and so then I started thinking about the descriptions of the financial markets um, this is in the late 2000s around the time of the financial crisis uh, as uh, as monstrous and then I so I, I was poking around and I happened upon a correspondence uh, between a um, a Goldman Sachs uh, banker and his girlfriend, where he talked about derivatives as like Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster. And then that took me down a rabbit hole and I decided to give up the, the Max Weber, Karl Marx, Derrida discussion and, and, and write a book about financial derivatives. Great. To get us started, I was hoping we could start sort of with this big question you pose in the preface, which is a whether we live in a world um, where risk is bought and sold, and sort of how you tie this to Marx. Sure. Um, well, to, to give our listeners a, a bit of backdrop, so the, the, the conceit of the book is still very much um, that we can use Karl Marx to think about contemporary capitalism, but that we need to, uh, to rethink or update some of the categories. And so uh, Karl Marx writes about commodities or merchandise and uh, and the buying and selling of labor power as a as a commodity and I started thinking about what's the analog uh, in today's conversation the analog to, to commodities or commodification and decided it was financial securities so then the question was basically you know if labor is the source of value for commodities what's the source of labor for pardon, what's the source of value for for financial securities and if you, if you start reading around the, the kind of the language or the discourse of political economy or financial economics, you find that they're really interested in risk as effectively a source of value. So then the question is, you know, what does it mean to trade risk, to, to buy and sell um, risk and, and so forth? So the, 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 the book is kind of a, an exercise in rewriting capital, but with different categories. And, and instead of labor being so central to the conversation, risk becomes a central category. Great, thank you. So you sort of talk about um, subprime loans, uh, which a lot of people know about from the financial crisis in 2008. 
So I was wondering if you could start us off here by talking more about how that ties to Marx. Sure. Uh, let me see. Um, well, if you know, if if you really want a good introduction to subprime uh, or to the financial crisis, I, I would refer you to an episode of South Park uh, called uh, Margaritaville. And uh, I I haven't been able to distill the you know, the financial crisis as elegantly as as they have. Um, but subprime loans, um, as as people may recall uh, or know firsthand, are are loans that people were given despite having uh, incredibly low credit scores. So basically, these were loans made to people who were not likely to repay their loan. And so they were called subprime. Uh, the the technologies on, on financial markets had emerged such that or developed such that people felt they could, in fact, lend to uh, people who had such poor credit because they were able to pool together these various subprime loans and securitize them, which is to say, sell them back on financial markets uh, and effectively pass off the risk that people would default. So subprime loans were, were just loans um, that were very risky, but were extended on the assumption that that risk was being diffused around or through the market by means of various technologies, including so-called securitization. And then, of course, uh, you know, these, these and other borrowers started defaulting on their loans in excess of what was expected and brought the whole uh, house down. Uh, so, it, you know, I certainly was not familiar with that language until after the crisis. And so uh, you're right that many of us now know the story of subprime loans, but too few of us were aware of it as it was unfolding. Great, thanks. And I was hoping uh, you could sort of elaborate here on Marx's idea of fetishism, which I could never say. Um, but if you could sort of talk about how you use that idea in your book. One workaround is just to say the fetish, I find. It's easier to say. So let's see. Marx has this notion that uh, the relation of the relations among producers appear to them as relations among things. Uh, so he says something like the social character of the relations of production appear to the producers as relations among commodities. So basically, we all it's the it's the labor of, of society in general that goes into the production of things. But the, the, the market, and the division of labor makes it appear as if uh, commodities had value in relation to each other, regardless of social relations. And you can transpose that that description onto financial markets, I think, pretty well. Uh, if you think of financial markets as a way of socializing risk or bearing risk together, so financial markets are a way for people to take chances and, and to shoulder that, that the risk that comes with taking you know, these business uh, ventures. Um, but that's not how it appears to us. It appears as, as a market where securities have relations to each other. And the language, in English anyway, is particularly interesting to me that we speak of financial securities when, when really the thing that makes them valuable are the risk relations that go into them. So there's a kind of a, an inversion, if you want, of, of the social character of these relations that appear to us as relations among securities, if that makes sense. Great. Thank you. So then you sort of move into this idea of exchange values. And so Marx, you, Marx used um, wheat or corn and iron, and you sort of apply it to a modern day example. So I was wondering if you could talk more about that. So, you know, writing the book, as you might have 
guest was was you know a peculiar exercise. So the Capital is the book that I use as my model. So Volume One of Capital, which you know is an absolutely brilliant and very difficult book, and mine is a you know a adequate and and very uh, short book that that is uh, basically follows the, the the narrative arc of of Capital. And so uh, Marx does begin that book with two commodities in exchange. Uh, it's uh, depending on your translation, wheat or corn and iron. And it, it happens that in German, these almost sound the same. And and so he asks what it means to exchange these commodities one for the other. And so as this kind of, um, you know, what the French call an exercice de style, like kind of a, a, a little kind of uh, poetic uh, challenge, I, uh, I I thought, what, what, what if we used, um, I forget what I used, but wheat futures, I think, and, and stock in a, in a mining company. So instead of taking wheat and, and iron, uh, take the kind of financial, financialized equivalent of these. And again, Marx makes the claim that the reason these things can be exchanged and what is being exchanged when we trade these things is the labor required to produce them. And I, I look at the literature on financial economics and make the case that from their standpoint of of traders, what is being exchanged or what is being abstracted is the risk contained in all these securities. So, so you know, the, the first chapter is a bit burdensome or arduous, but in that sense, it it, it follows Marx's uh, chapter in that it tries to it tries to unearth the, the the source of value or something like that. Um, but yeah, it, it's the wheat. Uh, I I don't know whether it works, but it was kind of fun to write. Great, thank you. So one of the things um, that you pick up from Marx is this idea of dependence, that we're sort of all dependent on each other. And I found this theme throughout your book. And so I was hoping you could elaborate more on how you saw that tying in to the financial markets um, through Marx. Yeah, so I think you're right that Marx has this insight about uh, the, the mutual dependence that we all have in society. And again, it kind of circles back to the, the, the appearance of independence in capitalism, where we all think of ourselves as individuals buying individual things, but it's really a, a socialized relation uh, or socialized uh, mode of production. So there's that's one thread that I think you can pull through. And and, and the, the way I, I kind of depart from Marx is in thinking not just of production or relations of production, but what I call pardon me, relations of prediction or or protection. So you mentioned, um, you know, serfs and lords, um, or uh, I forget the other examples. But basically, I, I say we can uh, we can kind of historicize or periodize not just production, but the relations of protection. So uh, there, there again, I'm I'm kind of riffing on Marx, but Marx goes through this uh, uh, thought experiment where, you know, he goes to Robinson Crusoe's Devil's Island and and thinks, you know, this is a guy who, who does everything by himself until he meets Man Friday. Um, but then he goes to the Middle Ages and realizes like each society has its own mode of production. And you can do something similar thinking of, like, how do people anticipate the future? How do they protect themselves against the eventualities that they anticipate and and each period has its own uh, mode of protection at least that's a kind of a, a you know a suggestion and these days uh i i submit that our relation to the future is mediated by these financial markets 
that we, you know, so right now I'm, I'm, I'm writing something about climate change and climate risk. Uh, increasingly, we think of the, 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 the warming of the planet in economic terms and in terms of financial uh, risk. And, and that's, you know, all kinds of uh, damaging. Great. Thank you. So then um, in Chapter 3, you sort of bring up Marx's um, character of money bags, which I really liked. Um, so the, sort of this financial character. And so I was hoping you could t- tell us more about that character. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting uh, what, what you pick up on are, are, I think, the things that I liked about writing the book, which are the kind of narrative devices. Uh, as I said, I had been writing on Marx from a somewhat literary perspective. And so I, was, I had spent some time thinking about his use of personification or the, the way his argument moves from one level to another. And so there's this figure in, in Marx's capital that the translator, the English translator, Ben Fawkes, uh, calls Moneybags. No, he's actually a different translator. I forget. Anyway, in, in German, it's uh, the, the Geldbesitzer, the owner of money. But the, this English translation uses Moneybags. And it's it's a way to for Marx and certainly for me to, to personify this capitalist uh, or, or capital and, and give give it kind of a human form. And anyway, so money bags appears in Marx's story. So there's a puzzle that Marx is trying to figure out, which is, you know, it seems that m- people are exchanging commodities at their value. That's a kind of a law of, of political economy. And the value of these commodities comes from the labor required to make them. And yet somehow profit or wealth is generated out of this exchange, and so he's he's he, he's like, what's what's the what's the mystery? And he solves the mystery by following this character Moneybags into the hidden abode of production, and that's where he finds Moneybags buying the labor power of workers. And basically, you know, if you if you've read Marx or taken a kind of a Marxism 101 course, you'll remember that that labor power as a commodity costs exactly the same. Uh, well, it, 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 the value of it is what is required to reproduce it and so forth, but it somehow re- creates profit for, for the person buying it. I won't, you know, bore you with the argument, but effectively I, I, I follow money bags, uh, today into what I call the hidden abode of prediction. And that's where we find him lending money to people. And as a result of this, somehow he's able to borrow more money on financial markets. And so there's a kind of an analog, uh, analogous mystery, which is the exchange of securities on financial markets seems to generate a kind of power or security for, for some people while creating increased vulnerability for others. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm really just stealing the, the, the basic narrative structure or insight from Marx. Uh, but instead of calling it the abode of production, I call it the abode of prediction. And then I, I, it forces me to, to think about the specifics of of what kind of exchange really happens on financial markets. Great. Thank you. So another thing that I sort of picked up on in your book that I hadn't really thought about before is credit scores and what they symbolize, what they are even. I mean, a lot of people have credit scores, but do we really know what they are and what they're used for? So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. Credit scores are um, are a remarkable development. Um, you know, it's 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 
and one of the things that's remarkable is, as you say, you know, you don't think about it too much, especially if you have uh, a pretty good credit score. But even if you don't, um, you can think about it all you want. There's not that much you can do um, to to control it or to improve it. Partly because, uh, well, it. Let's see. A, a credit score is a a measure of the risk that you represent to potential lenders, and so it's meant as an objective measure of your risk, or that is the risk you represent. But it's a measure that's arrived at by comparing the pattern of your spending and borrowing and repayment with those of others. Um, so it's 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 a kind of a you know it's um, it's an abstraction that's arrived at from the study of populations, and then it is ascribed to individuals and in ways that define their their economic chances. So the the place of credit scores in my story is I don't know it's, I guess it's something like the the clock if you want the clock that measures the amount of time you work or your productivity at a factory um, the credit score is is a measure of your riskiness or your credibility and depending on your credibility you get a certain uh, rate so a certain interest rate uh, but the credit score is also something that allows borrower pardon me lenders to uh, not just measure the risk of individual borrowers, but also project their own credit worthiness on financial markets. So to kind of to go over this a little quickly, if I'm lending money to a bunch of people who each have their own credit score, uh, some of them are you know very credit worthy, some of them less so, I'm going to be more um, credit worthy as a result of having a diversified portfolio. And so my own score on financial markets is going to be better than the score of the people to whom I'm lending. And so it's a way of um, and, of making this seem all fair at the same time as it it's unfair in the sense that the, the benefit accrues to, to the lender. Um, so, yeah, that's a kind of expedient uh, condensed version of the, of the, of the story. Great. Thank you. So then in your book, you sort of move into this idea that, you know, you see a lot of parallels between what's happening today and what was sort of happening 500 years ago in the capitalist society. So I sort of saw it as history repeating itself. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk more about that or if you see it that way. History repeats itself insofar as we tell the same stories about it. So I'm not making a kind of a claim about a recurrence of things in themselves, but I'm more repurposing uh, a story. So, uh, so it's not to distance myself from the claim that you just made, but just to clarify it a little bit. Uh, so the story uh, that I'm reprising here is what Marx calls the so-called primitive accumulation. So it's the prehistory to capital in a sense. And he, he has this story of how uh, during the enclosures movement, uh, people were forced to abandon the countryside and move to towns. Uh, where where they would be able to provide for, for themselves. So this was a uh, a dramatically, um, br- it was a very brutal um, kind of forcing of populations into towns and their people were punished for begging or if they were vagabonds, they were branded as slaves. And the result in a very condensed form is that uh, you get the industrial working class that's ready to, to work in factories as a result of this population shift. And the the story that I tell is the prehistory of 
the rise not of towns, but the rise of what in, in England or in London people call the city, so the financial district. And so it's, it's again, by analogy, uh, as people are, 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 as the means of protection uh, are privatized, so people have to leave uh, their earlier arrangements and go to credit cards or to insurance companies or effectively go to the, to the financial sector um, in search of, of, of uh, adequate protection. And so the, the story there is basically that as the, as the welfare, state get, welfare state gets undone or, or, or refashioned in, in the kind of global north, there's a, a concurrent rise of, of the financial sector, which takes the place of, 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 the, uh, of the welfare state. And there's an individualization of, of, of risk um, in the same way that people had to, to become laborers or make themselves subject to, to capital. Uh, so now we have to produce ourselves as creditworthy subjects who can borrow and borrow responsibly. Great. Thank you. Another sort of idea that, you know, struck me in your book was this idea that we don't really use cash anymore. A lot of things are electronic exchanges. So my job pays me electronically and I use that electronic money to pay electronic bills. Um, and you use this to sort of illustrate the idea of the marketplace as enclosed. And I was hoping you could tell us more about that. Sure. Um, yeah. So so I have that experience, too. And of course, it's not a universal experience. Some people are still using cash. And it's, in a sense, a sign of my privilege that I can afford not to use cash. But that being said, many of us, uh, especially to the extent that we you know, engage in market activity online, uh, have to use uh, credit cards effectively. And the, the analogy to the enclosure there is that um, in order to enter into that relation of exchange, we have first to show our credibility as borrowers, right? So you can't, uh, you can't just use cash uh, to, to enter into a transaction. You have to, to have some kind of other identity and credibility that is measured uh, through this credit score. Um, the, uh, I forget, I, you know, right now I'm, I'm blanking on the, the, uh, the larger point I was making in that in that chapter uh, regarding the enclosure of the markets, but basically that it's, you know, it, it ushers in a new, um, you know, it surreptitiously almost happens without our noticing, but effectively creates an, a, a new kind of configuration where, in, in the case of of credit scores, we're placed in competition with each other, not just for wages, but for for good credit, and and that's something that you know, we're not always conscious of. And even if we are conscious of, it's hard to be in control of it. So if I make good on my promise to pay my debts every month, if I, you know, if I have, if I have enough cash flow to, to pay my credit card bill, I'm, I may be giving myself the chance of having a good credit score, but I'm also putting pressure on other people um, at the same time. So it's a pretty pernicious, it, to my mind, uh, way of encouraging a certain kind of you know, concern for one's own credit at the expense of other people's credit. So then at the end of your book, you sort of bring back this narrative of the monster and you um, do a comparison between vampires and zombies. And so I was sort of wondering if you could talk more about that. Sure. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this, that's kind of where the book started was in this language uh, or this metaphor of, of monstrosity. And thankfully, uh, you know, I didn't write a whole book about that, but it, it did it did kind of um animate some of the narrative and so the the last chapter 
is a bit uh, peculiar in that it, it, it abandons the, the, the Marxian narrative. And it's about uh, the, a trial uh, of a gold, this, this, this same Goldman Sachs lawyer or uh, Goldman Sachs trader or um, analyst that I mentioned earlier. And he's the only, his name is Fabrice Tour, and he, he was uh, found guilty of, of uh, securities fraud. And he's the only person to have been charged in a connection to the financial crisis. And the, the language of, of monstrosity there, uh, I, I use the, uh, there, there's quite a bit that's been written about zombies. There's also a famous piece in Rolling Stone describing Goldman Sachs as a vampire squid uh, with its, you know, wrapped around the face of humanity. And the, the, the question I end with, in a sense, is whether um, if in the 19th century, the language of vampire was how people expressed uh, the anguish or the suffering associated with capitalism. The, the analog today is, is the image of the zombie and what it means to live in an era not of industrial or vampiric capitalism, but one of zombie capitalism, where it's the kind of a threat of contagion and also need to protect yourself against, against others uh, that that both drives us to financial markets and is itself animated by financial markets. So it's 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 a kind of a playful, speculative place to end. I, I don't want to hang too much on these metaphors, but it's it's one way of, of you know continuing the, the the story or the questioning. Great, thank you again for talking to us about your book today. I was sort of wondering here at the end if you could give us a takeaway or anything else that we hadn't talked about. To me, it's it was an exercise in self-clarification. So it was, uh, you know, I I learned a lot writing it. I had some fun writing it. I also learned something about Marx's book. So it's, you know, it's it's a bit of a companion to to Marx, but it certainly doesn't require any knowledge of Marx, or for that matter, any knowledge of financial markets. I think. Uh, so you can you can read it on its own. You can read it as a as a playful thought experiment. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know how people uh, read it and what they make of it. But but no, it's, it certainly wouldn't take the place of a of capital, but it's uh, perhaps a, a little footnote to it. I was wondering if you could tell us what you're currently working on. Well, at the very moment, I'm writing a very short thought piece about financial markets and climate change. Um, so it's it's related in the sense that uh, it's still about financial markets and it's not related in the sense that I venture into new terrain. Uh, and there the story, unfortunately, is, is, is pretty bleak, which is that, you know, people turn to financial markets with the hope that it might mitigate the use of fossil fuels. But the volatility on financial markets is such that that's not going to happen in its current configuration. Uh, the longer term project I have is um, about the rise of probability theory or specifically Bayesian probability theory. And I'm not sure I'll do this, but my idea right now is to to use Max Weber's Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism as my uh, as the text with which through which to to think the emergence of of the algorithm, what I'm calling the algorithm, or or the use of Bayesian probability in in contemporary um, kind of machines. So that that's still very much um, in progress. That sounds really interesting. So thank you again, Ivan, for being here today. Well, th- thanks for having me. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. 